On this week's Emerging Tech Horizons podcast, what's in the NDAA and what does it mean for you? Hello and welcome to the Emerging Tech Horizons podcast. I'm Arun Serafin, Executive Director of NDIA's Emerging Technology Institute. Today's podcast episode is a look at the recently passed Fiscal Year 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA. And we're going to take a look at what's in it that matters to those of us who think about how emerging technologies are going to shape the future of national defense. Joining me in this conversation today is my guest, Mr. Moshe Schwartz. Hi, Moshe. Hi, Aaron. He's the president of Etherton and Associates, a consulting firm, and is also a senior fellow at the National Defense Industrial Association. So please join me in welcoming Moshe back to the podcast. Moshe, you were a previous guest on the podcast, joined us to talk about other transactions authorities and consortia, and appreciate you coming back one more time to educate us on the NDAA. It was my pleasure. So to set the baseline on looking at the NDAA, help us out for the listeners. What is the NDAA? Who makes it? Who writes it? Why is it important? How is it built? Absolutely. So the National Defense Authorization Act is just that. It authorizes, and it primarily focuses on policy. It authorizes policy. Now, it does have an authorization for funding, But what is important to remember is that it is not the final word on the funding. That is the Appropriations Act, right? So the authorization focuses on policy and the appropriations focuses on the actual money that's going to go to the Department of Defense and anyone else that's in in those appropriations bills. So that's the first thing to talk about. The second one is particularly the National Defense Authorization Act. This Authorization Act is for primarily the Department of Defense and occasionally some other things that that get into play. It is also useful to keep in mind that the National Defense Authorization Act has passed every year for more than 60 years. Even in the most dysfunctional of Congresses. Even in the most dysfunctional of Congresses. And the reason why that is important is one is that's a good thing, right? But the second is because it is a reliable piece of legislation that passes, a lot of other people want to hang on to this bill the legislation they couldn't get because of, as you said, there's sometimes some dysfunction where even if something everyone agrees to, it can't get onto another piece of bill. So it, as, as you would say, it rides on the NDAA. And you saw that in this year's NDAA as well. You had the State Department Authorization Act. You had the Intel Authorization Act. You even had the extension of FISA authorities right, uh, up until April. So that's what the NDAA is. It's written ostensibly first by the Armed Services Committee. So in a perfect world, and we are not in a perfect world, but in a perfect world, the House Armed Services Committee drafts their bill and it passes the House as it did this year. The Senate Armed Services Committee will put together their bill and it'll pass out of the committee and then pass the Senate as it did this year. And then they will conference do a little bit of horse trading as you do in Congress, and then they'll have a final bill that is word for word identical. It'll go back to both chambers. They'll both sign it. Then it's passed by the House and, I'm sorry, they will not sign it. It will be passed by the House and Senate. Then it'll go over to the president and the president will sign it. And then you have your NDAA. And that's the thing that just happened a couple of weeks ago in, in, what is it, late December, early January? Yes, just happened in December. In December, 
the president signed the this year's version of the NDAA. Correct. Now, the fiscal year ends September 30th. So arguably, it was late to the year because it's the fiscal year 2024 NDAA, and we had been in that for about two and a half months the time it was signed. But that is normal, right? Of the last eight NDAAs, six of them were in December, and one was actually in January. So it has become standard, and expect the same thing to happen for the FY25 NDAA. I know we have to talk about this year's NDAA, but just to peek ahead, expect that to happen in the 25. Um, the, uh, so if I, if, you know, in front of us, we've got a couple of uh, props here. Um, those are old NDAAs. Um, so it is, a, it is a document. Yes. And it's thick. It is. Well, and it is the culmination of a lot of work over the year and sometimes over multiple years in reality. And so when we talked about before how the House Armed Services Committee drafts this and the Senate Armed Services Committee drafts that, it's really more complicated than that because the inputs come from everywhere. They come from all members of the House and Senate, either through the committee process like that or through amendments, which we can talk about if you want. Um, It comes from constituents. It comes from trade associations. It comes from lobbyists. And it comes from reports written by GAO or the Congressional Research Service or CBO or think tanks or federally funded research centers. It's this milieu of narrative that is going on and the competing interests. And they all come together and get filtered by the Armed Services Committee and then the Rules Committee in the House and others. And that's how this gets produced every year. And when I said sometimes multiple years in the making, the reason I I said that is because even though a bill comes out every year, Sometimes it takes a few years to get somewhere, and that could happen a couple of ways. Maybe one year, like in the 23 NDIA, it'll say, DOD, we want a report, and then they'll get a report on something and say, okay, you know what? We want a little bit more information. GAO, you give us a report on the same topic, but go in this direction. And then maybe the year after that, that turns into legislation. So sometimes things ripen appropriately until they figure out how to legislate. And so now who are the people on the Hill writing this legislation? So it is, I would say, a combination of three sources. You have the professional staff members of the Armed Services Committee who are putting policy to paper, right? Um, You have staffers from personal offices that are feeding into the staffers on the committee or feeding into amendments that are going to be submitted policy to paper from there. And then you have the dreaded lawyers in the House and Senate um, for the Armed Services Committee who are taking paper to statutory language. Okay, because I worked on the Hill for a long time and I'm not burdened with a law degree like you, Um, but what I wrote got turned into legalese by a set of lawyers on the Hill. And so that's one part of this NDAA product, that set of laws, legal provisions, which do the things that the Congress proposed and the president is going to sign into law. There are a couple of other products that come out alongside that. Um, So what is the conference report? So maybe we can take a step back, right? Because if you think of the NDAA, you invariably think of the legislation. But there's really a tableau of the NDAA. Because when the House passed their version of the bill, they had a House report that explained 
in many cases, what the logic was or what they were driving at for the provisions there. When the Senate passes their version of the bill, you have the Senate report that talks about why they were interested in something like that. And then you and have- And those, those reports are more written in common English. Yes. Right? The mm -hmm. average human could understand, in theory, a report, even if you can't penetrate legalese. Because the lawyers don't write it. So it is English. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then when the House and Senate conference, they come with the uh, joint explanatory statement or the conference report, however you want to reference it in shorthand. And that will invariably take the form of the House proposed this, the Senate proposed this, or the House proposed this and the Senate had no similar proposal, right? Um, one of them recedes or says, we give up, you win. Not really in those terms, but you know, they recede. And then you'll have a few sentences on why sometimes. Sometimes you'll actually have paragraphs on why, and then you know you struck a nerve. <laughs> There's something they really, really wanted to say. Um, so the reason I wanted to take that step back is because sometimes you might look at the conference report to explain what was the intent of the legislation, and you might not see a lot there, but it will tell you this came from the House. And so then you can go to the House report and see what they were thinking, and that will give you some sort of idea of why this came about. The, uh, the thing to keep in mind, though, is all of these reports, there are two things to keep in mind. One is all of these reports are not technically binding law. They are commentary, as it were. The second thing to keep in mind is these reports frequently tell DOD to do something, right? Most commonly, give us a report on this or brief on this. That's one big area where they say things. So they'll say, well, we recede. We're not going to pass this as legislation but you're gonna give us in six months a report and outline something for us. The second thing that the report does is it sends a very important message to DOD saying, we're not legislating, but we're interested in this. And underneath that is the idea that if you don't act on this, we may legislate in the future. And so it is a method of communication as well, short of legislation, which is very often a hammer. So alongside those words, if you look in one of these reports, you'll see tables of numbers. Yes. And so those were those authorizations of funding that you talked about, which are also not binding because they are not appropriations. And so we have to wait for that final appropriations bills for the real numbers. Right. The other thing that comes out that not a lot of people track is there some classified material that comes out in a classified annex, which is then absorbed by the Pentagon and those appropriate people who can read it in the industry side. And those deal with matters that just can't be discussed in the public report. So that package of things is the NDAA. Is that fair? Yes, I, absolutely. So um, pretend I was actually interested after all that. Where could I find this thing? So the easiest thing to do is just type in, for this year's NDA, into Google FY24 NDAA, and you're going to get links. That's the easiest thing to do. Uh, but if you want to get a little bit more technical, there's congress.gov, which is the website that Congress basically runs, and it tracks everything. And so you can go in there and track the NDAA. It goes a step further as well. It will give you a link to the House version of the NDA and the Senate version of the NDA and the conference report and the committee reports. 
It will even give you links to the amendments that were filed all along the process, so you can even track. So these are all part of the public record? All part of the public record. And now online? Now online. And you can track who proposed what, and if it was adopted, and by what margin. Okay. So with all that preamble then, yeah. what's in it for those of us who care about emerging technologies? Okay. What, what are the themes that I should be tracking here? So as it relates specifically to emerging technologies, let me suggest two themes. One is workforce, and one is attracting industry to bring their emerging capabilities. If you take a step back, the theme of the entire NDAA in one word would be China. Right? So emerging technologies definitely falls under that. But those two themes, so workforce, and there are two parts of Title II, which deals with these emerging technologies. Because the NDA is broken up into titles. Correct. Which are basically chapters. Yeah. And those chapters. chapters deal with different topics. Exactly. Like Title VIII will be procurement. Title II is dealing with these emerging technologies. And so there are two places in Title II that perhaps we can see this workforce play out. The first one is there are two sections, Section 219 and Section 220, that authorize respectively a fellowship for, public, um, for quantum and a public-private exchange for personnel to go into the department and for industry, also for quantum. So what we see here is Congress saying quantum, there are other provisions, we'll talk about that hopefully shortly, but there's a workforce issue with quantum in the Department of Defense. So we're going to put two opportunities here, one for fellowships and one for exchange programs with industry. Right? So it, you see quantum is important and the workforce in DOD on quantum is important. Then there's subtitle D, personnel, right, in title 15. That's cyberspace because that's the title for their cyberspace matter. So you see cyber there, AI there. So in that title, there is the subtitle or the subchapter. Subtitle D is all about workforce. That's the title of it. So there are a few provisions. So we're there. talking about cyber workforce, AI workforce. Absolutely. How the government can hire, how we can train people, those sorts of issues. Exactly. Okay. So that clearly is on their mind. And that Title 15 is also very relevant to emerging technologies, the AI and the cyber and, the, and, and all those related issues. The second big topic that seemed to jump out was attracting, in, attracting industry. There's been a challenge with the Department of Defense over the last 12 years that based on DOD's data, the number of companies selling to DOD and frankly to the entire government has been shrinking. And that has been a growing concern, both because there are less people competing to sell as well as you're limiting the access to technology. Right, because other people are selling their wares elsewhere. So even if the number of technology companies in the country and the world is growing, the number that are working with the department seems to be shrinking. Uh, it's not even an even if. If you look at the raw numbers in the U.S. economy, the economy is growing, the number of companies in the U.S. is growing. That is a fact. But it is shrinking those working with government, That, according to DOD data. Right? So there are some provisions that seem to be trying to figure out how do we get more companies to work with the Department of Defense, particularly in the emerging technology area. Let me throw a couple out. There is Section 223, developing a consortia on the use of additive manufacturing for defense capability. And just a word on consortia, what consortia is, is getting a group of entities together, 
mostly of industry, but also DOD agencies and universities, FFRDCs, really anyone can play there around a particular technology, in this case, the additive manufacturing. And you can contract through there and you can try to get collaboration both with DOD and industry and within industry to get that technology in. Easing the process of working with the government. Absolutely. And it has a great track record. Another one is Section 809. This is probably my favorite um, section title. It's called pilot, uh, it's pilot Program for Anything as a Service. So anything that you've got, as long as it is defined, can be metered and measured right, at, uh, per unit, let's do a pilot and see how we can get that in. Right? And it's consumption-based solutions that are, and here's a definition where it relates to emerging technology, technology-supported capability. So it's focusing on technology. And one of the goals is to foster continuous competition. So not just more competition, but because it's consumption, a lot more continuous competition as opposed to being locked into someone for five, 10 years. So when you think about that, then you're trying, the Congress is some way trying to tie this to the way the commercial sector sells to itself, mm -hmm. business to business. And it's thinking about both technologies and services where DOD can consume your service or product over time and you can somehow charge me by the... Whatever. Hour. It could be by the print if it's IP in theory, right? It, it could be by the usage of the, so of the service, of software. Yeah, it could be anything. Which is, in general, a change in behavior by the government as a customer. Though. Ideally a change. It's only a pilot. It's only a but, pilot. But, we, but we shall see. So the question is, what does the pilot offer industry, right? There are some things that Congress put in there to sweeten the deal. So for example, the first one is participating in the pilot, you're exempt from required cost or pricing data. And what that is, is sometimes the department requires that you give all your cost and pricing data. You would be exempt from that. It also, under certain circumstances, exempts you from full and open competition. In other words, it does always under all circumstances, and you'd have to read the fine print and that legalese, but you might not, it might not have to be competed. You know, so there are, there are sweeteners in there for industry to or try to get new industry to participate. The other provision I wanted to mention as an example of trying to bring in more innovative ideas from industry is Section 1525. So that go, goes back to the cyberspace matters. Um, it's called Prize Competitions for Business System Modernization. And the idea is how do we help DOD modernize its systems? It's had some challenges in modernizing their system. I think uh, last year, one of the big poster boys for their challenges is DOD was trying to take its defense travel system, which um, is not the most popular system that DOD has when people are trying to do travel, and move it over to a commercial system, Concur. This system was working, but DOD just wasn't able to get adoption and execute, right? They weren't able to, to get the department to move in the direction that it needed to to gain all those efficiencies and cost savings. So what Congress here was saying is, let's do a, a, a competition and give awards out if someone can help us modernize. Winner, winner wins a money prize. Yeah, right. exactly. So this is an outgrowth of the technology prizes, the ones that DARPA used to run with the... It's exact, it references them in the law. It says under these authorities, absolutely. Under unmanned vehicles in the desert, the X prize, mm -hmm. right? Those kinds of prizes. Exactly. Used for something slightly different in this case. Yes, a boring business system. Boring but important business system. Yeah. So um, 
let's look at some more of these uh, individual provisions, really, with the focus on the science, technology, emerging yeah. technologies pieces. So I'm just going to call some out. It's like a quiz show here. Uh, okay. Section 211. Yeah, I know that one. <laughs> is, uh, is, is, some, is an unfunded <clears throat> list. So tell us yeah. about that one. Yeah, so what that statute says is it says the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering has to submit to Congress their list of unfunded priorities. Unfunded, what isn't in the budget? Budget requests. Budget requests, right? Um, priorities. In order of their priority, not in alphabetical order, but in the order of the priority you want it. That's what is dictated there. So these are things that when the president presented his budget to the Congress, didn't make the cut. Correct. And there could be two reasons why it didn't make the cut. One reason is because it just lost out in the battle, right, of what gets in and what gets out. And the other one, in theory, is it's a late to need or it just... The process was, was locked in, books were printed, right. doors were closed, too late. Yeah, because it's done three, four years in advance, right? You just can't get it in. Now, where did this come from? There has been a long-standing statutory requirement for the military departments and the combatant commands, geographic combatant commands. So Army, Navy, Air Force, Central Command, yes. Pacific yes. Command, right? Yes. To submit their unfunded priorities, right? And these unfunded priority lists have, in some instances, been the basis for Congress adding or shifting funding to these priorities. Okay, so they say, look, I see what you requested formally in your budget. I also see this other's, other list yes. coming from Central Command, and they choose sometimes to fund those things on the other lists at the expense of things that were in the budget request. Not always at the expense. So if you look at last year, the president's budget came over and Congress plussed up defense spending. So if Congress is going to say, we want to give more defense spending, they're like, well, where should we put that more defense spending? And it's very convenient to go, oh, here's a list right. from the combatant commands of what they need in Pacific Indo-PACOM. So what's Indo the signal being spent by asking, sent by asking Undersecretary for Research <clears throat> and Engineering to send such a list? That we may go in a different direction than the president's budget. But in fairness, that's not a huge secret. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it highlights congressional interest in looking at what the <coughs> undersecretary thinks are the highest priority research and engineering projects. Absolutely, because when the president's budget request comes over, what happens is it would be like me coming to you and say, fund this. I'm not saying fund this out of all these other options. I'm giving you one choice. So what these unfunded priorities as lists coming over to Congress do is it gives Congress a larger picture of you're asking me to fund this at what expense? What were the other options that you chose not to? Because I could, in theory, disagree with you. And at the end of the day, I'm Congress. I actually make the decision on funding. Right. So sometimes these are the, the first thing that didn't make the cut. Exactly. Okay. Um, let's talk about another one. Section 229. Rapid response to emergent technology advancements. Yes. That seems like something we'd all be for. Oh, of course. Well, many of this is what we'd all be for when you look at the headline heading. So the first thing to mention is there are currently rapid acquisition authorities for things, and I'm going to use the title, urgent operational needs. 
right? That currently exists. Uh, and it's limited. What this is doing is saying, if you need an urgent or emerging operational development activity for up to a year, right? You can do that. You have one year to do it, so it's time bound to leverage an emerging advancement. So there's this new technology investment that we didn't know existed before. Right. That could be really good. So we didn't plan for it four years ago. Right. Right. Or we can't. Or the breakthrough just happened. Breakthrough just happened. And we don't want to go through all this whole acquisition process. We want this expedited process. But it has to be for an emerging threat or, or for an emerging threat identified for a military service. Right. So, so it can't just be a clever idea looking for a home. Well, one or the other, if, if, it's, if it was really emerging to know about or it's to respond to a particular threat, then you could use the other existing authorities. What does that mean? The ones that I mentioned that were already on the books. So for example, um, RDT&E, uh, let me take a step back. Under the existing authority, if you use these authorities, you can waive any provision of law or regulation that relates to RDT&E requirements, fielding, or even competition, as long as it doesn't cross into spending appropriately in some of the illegal things, right? So that so sounds pretty. It's pretty good if you could waive competition. And yeah, if you can waive a lot of these requirements because you need to, it could be very powerful. So when Congress writes an authority like that, then it must put some constraints over, like you said. Don't do anything completely legal. What, what are the constraints on that? So it has to be for a year. It has to be for these purposes. You can only do it for a year. Right. Okay. It has to be for these purposes. Right. The emerging threat or emerging technology. Exactly. Okay. And people have to put their name to it. They have to put their name there's to it. There's always, and I don't... And there's a dollar limitation. There's a dollar limitations, And they are dollar limitations that seem big to typical people, but not very big for the Department of Defense. So it's $100 million. That would be a... a in that realm, I don't remember what the exact number is, but it's something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then usually it requires some sort of reporting to Congress. Right. So the idea is you're limited in time, you're limited in scope, you're limited in dollars, and you have to tell somebody of responsibility has to sign on it before, and you have to let us know what you're doing. Right. That's the general approach. And so that's how Congress tries to put a box on it and keep an eye on it. Right. And there's another way implicitly that an eye is kept on it, which is, and if you don't do it right, we're going to take the authority and away. just take it away. And they've done that before. Right. Right. Absolutely. So um, that's a sense of uh, trying to hit speed in the system, right? Which we all want the system now to be able to react more quickly to those emerging threats, emerging technologies. Another perennial discussion in town is the valley of death. So there's a section 806, which it looks like it's trying to think about this valley of death issue, principal technology transition advisor. Yes. So what are we trying to get at with that one? So what they're trying to get at is exactly that, transitioning technologies. That, from what? From the labs, right? Dual use technologies, get them into the, the markets, get them into the DOD, just get it from this great prototype and idea to fielding. Out of research and into fielding. Exactly, which is always a challenge. So what's the advisor supposed to do? So each military department is supposed to have its own advisor to advise on how to make that happen. 
So a couple things about that. One is that's great, but the success or failure of a provision like this, I would argue, depends on the gut commitment of those who are supposed to execute it, right? Because you could make somebody your advisor or you can really make someone an advisor who's going to be doing the work, right? And so it really depends on how much- Because you, you could end up with some official who's told- This is your fourth responsibility. You're the advisor, but this is your fourth responsibility, right? Absolutely. Or it could be, this is your full-time day job. Go after this. Help people across the valley of death. Right. But even if you say to somebody, that is your full-time job, but here's your red stapler and here's your cubicle, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily do it either, right? These things don't happen without senior leadership, and there is a limited aperture of senior leadership attention. So digging into the legalese, um, one thing I thought was clever in that particular provision was a directive to develop and maintain metrics on project outcomes. And, um, and that was even for projects at higher levels of technological maturity. So in Department of Defense speak, um, higher levels of maturity mean things like 6.3. 6.4, 6.5, those are budget categories on the development end of the R&D pipeline. And so it seems like they're trying to think about how those more mature R&D efforts are transitioning into procurement of actual goods and services. So that is another perennial challenge, is tracking data to see how successful things are. So I don't remember if it was in the 21 or the 22 NDAA, but in, in one of those NDAs, there were about four or five provisions in Title VIII, the procurement, which said, we're giving you this authority or do this pilot, but as part of it, you must track it or you must, before you can use these authorities, I thought this was very clever as well, you must submit to us your plan on how you're going to measure success of the pilot and then, of course, report it to us. That sounds incredibly clever. Yes, I very much so. And yet, I haven't seen that happen since that NDA. In the last three years, I haven't seen it, which leads me to wonder how successful that turned out being. I have not heard, and now maybe I'll go back and try to do some digging, because <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great idea, but that, like the one before with the, tech, the, the uh, technology transition advisor, it will all be about, is it executed right or not? So... Um... Sometimes, you know, th those were sort of policy issues, speed of acquisition, valley of death kinds of issues. Sometimes in these, in these NDAAs on the emerging technology <coughs> side, Congress tries to dive deep into specific technology areas uh, using the, the conference report, using the law. One example of that was a set of provisions relating to energetic materials used in explosives and munitions and the like. So the, there's a section 241 that establishes a joint energetics transition office. What is, what is that one? So energetics has taken a little more center stage with some of the conflicts going on around the world now, right? And that goes back to how is the NDAA developed, the inputs of what's happening around the world and what it starts becoming important to industry and to DOD and others translates into the NDAA and energetics is translating into the NDAA. And so Congress was looking at this and with all these inputs saying, Energetics, this is important, but I don't see your strategy. 
I don't see your organizational framework to execute this. So we want to see your strategy. In this particular case, they went further and said, not only do we want you to give us a strategy, we want to see your investment plan. You will create an investment plan and you will create an office to execute all of this, to get this done. Now, the requirement to do this, uh, and of course, annual reports, right? Annual report to us every year. The authority for this only runs until September 30th, 2027, or the end of the fiscal year for FY26. That's not too far from now. That's not too far from now, right? So it's not a permanent thing, but that's what they're saying is, we want to see your homework. Where's your strategy? Where's your investment plan? So basically, plan? You're, you're, you're saying energetics is important, <clears throat> and it, it is, right? Important for weapon systems and, and lots of other stuff. Um, our, our constituents, industry, universities are saying it's important. We're not confident that you either have a plan or that you're organized to do the things we all think we should be doing, right? Develop the technology and deploy the technology. Is yeah. that fair? Basically, yeah. And so this creating of a joint energetics transition office is a common thing for Congress to do, right? It's done this before in things like hypersonics, for example. So they even go at bigger levels than that. Even the entire organization of the Department of Defense is in the purview of that and is in the purview of the NDAA. So a few years back, what you had in the Department of Defense was the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. You do not have that anymore. Now you have the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering that we discussed, and the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. That was done at Congress's legislative prerogative. Okay, so those kinds of, we'll touch on those organizational kind of issues, yeah. issues are coming up here. Another technology area besides energetics that they dove into, you mentioned earlier, quantum science, quantum computing. One of them is um, Section 231, near-term quantum computing applications. What yeah. is that one? So that's about? opening the aperture for quantum use, is, is the way I read that. Um, it establishes a quantum computing in the, uh, I'm sorry, I was going to talk about the one that was dropped. Right? They didn't take everything in quantum, but I think that's what, what it's doing. It's saying, look, in the near term, we need to expand the capability of quantum. And I want to go a little bit further and go to what we talked about before, right? They're saying here we want to expand the use of quantum. And before, as we talked about, we want to build the workforce for quantum. When you take a step back, you're saying, ah, this is something that is more than just on their mind. This seems to be more than just an input from somebody. This seems to be a comprehensive effort where I think Congress is peering to the future and saying this is an area that we need to focus on and get DOD focused on. Yeah, and in particular in this one, I mean, we've had podcast episodes and events at ETI looking at quantum science, looking at quantum computing. This one really had an emphasis on near-term right, near quantum computing. And there's a lot of people out there that say there are very limited near-term uses given the state of quantum computing. Um, so it's interesting to see them asking the department to think about in the next few years, what can <coughs> quantum computing do that's useful to the Department of Defense? There's a different, interesting take on it. Yes, but I think that's an important role for Congress. Right? So if you look at something like hypersonics, historically, the Department of Defense, and it's not always their fault, right? There's funding relation issues as well, but they were doing really well in hypersonic research. And then 
it cut back. And then they started again and cut back. And at the moment, we're not necessarily the leaders in that because what was going on in the 70s where we really were leading in that area kind of atrophied, right? So for Congress, by the way, the same thing was kind of with cyber where over the last three or four years, there would be a request from the administration to fund it. Congress said, no, you need to fund this more because this is a bigger issue. And I think in retrospect, they were right, right? Cyber is a really big issue. And so what Congress, I think, is saying here is, yeah, you have a lot on your plate now, right? There's Ukraine, there's the Middle East, there's China. But there's also the future, and we're in such a rapid era of, of technology development and transition and innovation. Keep your eye on quantum. And even if there's no long-term today development, we don't want to happen what happened to the U.S. in hypersonics. That's number one. Number two, as I would point out, this is a pilot program. They're not saying... Verily, this is what you're doing for 20 years. They're saying, let's give this a shot. Let's explore. So it's almost a double near-term thing. It's the pilot program plus the focus on near-term. So they did some stuff in quantum, but you mentioned they didn't do some things that were proposed in quantum. What, what was that? Yeah, establishing a quantum computer innovation center. Maybe perhaps that was a little bit early to need. Maybe this is a let's tip our toe in the water, do this pilot program, focus on the workforce before we start building these structures. So that was proposed by either the House or the Senate, and it didn't survive the conference process. Correct. But, but going back to this theme of peering into the future, while it was dropped, they used the joint explanatory statement or the conference report to say, but DOD, submit to us a report on the feasibility of doing this in the future. So there's no mandate, but there's actually a request to take a look yes. at this idea. Okay. And this pulls together all those things we've talked about of how sometimes things take years to develop. Um, and sometimes it's not in legislation, but it's in report language where they're sending messages. That's all coming together in quantum. So there were a couple of other provisions that didn't survive that conference process, which were interesting for some of NDIA's members and people looking at emerging technologies. There's a set of things under the category legislative provisions not adopted, LPNA, like the one you were just talking about. Um, one of them was uh, in the House bill, Section 214, didn't survive the conference on disclosure requirements for universities. Right. What was that one about? And what that was specifically about is for the researchers and for some third-party affiliations that you have, we want or would have wanted, in this case because it wasn't adopted, information on their citizenship, on their affiliations, um, that type of demographic information. So this gets into the issue of research security worrying about yes. undue influence on campuses, particularly these days from uh, some of our competitor nations like China. And so this was an attempt to get after um, finding out who's doing our research work. Right, and, and sending a message of to what it, how well are we doing that security. And it's not just influence on, but also vulnerability of stealing Trump. Right. I think it's it's both of those things simultaneously. And that one did not survive it did not, the negotiation. It did not make it. Another one that didn't survive was from the Senate bill, Section 216, which looked at the microelectronics industry, which has been a huge discussion uh, for many years now um, with the passage of the CHIPS Act, which was one of those things that rode on an NDAA, and the Chips and Science Act, which funded a whole new set of 
domestic foundries and research activities. What was the thing that they were trying to do this year on microelectronics? So the idea here was to establish within the NSA. National Security Agency. Yes, um, a, a program to continuously update standards and commercial best practices for microelectronics. And again, like on the quantum theory, that this is something that is a little bit more ripe than quantum, right? This is a now thing. But we need to get a better handle on best practices and how we're doing this. But that one also did not survive. It didn't survive. But most times in the joint explanatory statement, you'll have three, four, or five sentences, maybe a paragraph and a half. This was huge. They wrote uh, paragraphs and paragraphs. I'm not exaggerating on this. So this is definitely something that was more than just dropping. This is something that if you're sitting in DOD and you're reading this, you should be taking a message. Not just because of that, but because they've passed legislation other than the CHIPS Act. In fact, in the NDAA on microelectronics, particularly around the area of security and supply chain. So the negotiated settlement in this case was, okay, we're not going to make a legal provision here. Right. But we, the conferees, are going to send a message to the Department of Defense about these microelectronic security standards. And to industry as well, right? It's not always just a, a message to the foreign defense. It could be a message to a lot of other people, industry, trade associations, other countries. So that was just the beginning of the conversation on the National Defense Authorization Act. Join us in the next episode of Emerging Tech Horizons as we continue talking to Moshe Schwartz about what's in the NDA and why it should matter to NDIA members. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Emerging Tech Horizons. Um, I want to just point out a couple of things that the ETI, Emerging Technologies Institute, is doing. Uh, the second annual Emerging Technologies Conference is going to be held August 7th through 9, 2024, in Washington, D.C., at the Convention Center. Uh, registration, sponsorship, display information will be open soon. Please check out our website and NDIA's website for all of our upcoming web webinars, events, and other conferences. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with all of our latest content.